You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and today uh, we are beginning a new short sermon series called Risen. And the goal of this uh, sermon series over the course of the next few weeks is to look at some pivotal moments in the life and ministry of Jesus that leads us to the resurrection, that will lead us to that first Easter morning. And so today we're going to begin really where it begins with Jesus' earthly ministry at his baptism. His baptism, we're going to see today, marks really the beginning of his public ministry, and it's a a pivotal moment in his life as it sets the stage for what he has come to do in fulfilling his mission on earth. And then next week, we're going to look at the transfiguration of Jesus, which is another powerful event in the life and ministry of Jesus, in which God speaks, and notice that in both of these occurrences, God speaks audibly to his son. And in both of these occurrences, he is proclaiming who Jesus is. And we're going to look next week at the transfiguration as he comes, and in that moment, he displays his divinity and his glory to his disciples. And we're going to see is that these important events help lead us to the final week of Jesus' life, Holy Week, which will happen in just a few weeks as we look at Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then finally Easter morning. And we hope that through this series, not only will we gain a better understanding of Jesus' life in ministry, perhaps we'll also gain a better understanding of his identity, of who he is, and the mission that he came to fulfill on our behalf as our uh, souls anticipate the coming of Easter. So we're going to begin today where it all began in his earthly ministry at his baptism. Now, there's one thing I really love about this time of year. There's a lot, but there's one thing in particular I love as a sports fan, and you could probably guess it, and it's March Madness. Okay, now it's already been the topic of discussion today with several of you. Uh, for some of you who are mourning the losses of your teams, we get it. It's okay, right? We could be emotionally attached to different teams, but what I love so much about March Madness and what is n- it's known for is this unpredictability. You can't predict it, right? Within a day, all of the brackets and the bracket challenges were busted. Not a single one was accurate. Now, there's a reason behind that, because there's, there's this emotion, and the upsets, and the teams that you think are going to win don't always win, like Purdue and Virginia and Arizona and Duke and Kansas, for our Kansas people, sorry, right? They get defeated by the underdogs, and it makes the tournament exciting, but it also makes it incredibly frustrating, because it's not predictable, because the outcomes we think are going to happen don't actually happen. The way we think things are going to work out never actually end up working out the way we expect it. And so what we do as a family this year, we decided, well, we're going to have a little pool of our, our own family, just myself, my wife, and then our six-year-old Ellie joined this year uh, to fill out a tournament bracket. Now, you can imagine Ellie filling out her bracket. She did not have much of a method. I literally just read the two names, and she just picked one. <laughs> Uh, and surprisingly, she picked the Baylor Bears to win it all um, because their mascot is the Bears. That's the only, literally the only reason she picked them. Now, uh, you compare that to then my bracket, which I try to use human reason. I try to use the intelligence I have about basketball and the teams and the predictability of the outcomes and what Vegas odds are saying. And I'm trying to reason all these things in logic to come up with a perfect bracket. And somehow to this day, Ellie is beating me in the bracket challenge. <laughs> Who would have thought Furman and Princeton would win? But she did. Uh, she had it picked out. She knew ahead of time. Right? Now, I, I, I use this as an illustration today because it's very similar, actually, to how we see Jesus come on the scene here. 
When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he does it in one of the most unpredictable fashions. In fact, it actually breaks the categories of how we would expect the Messiah to burst on the scene in his ministry. He begins his ministry not in the heart of culture and power, but on the outskirts. He begins his ministry with this controversial figure named John the Baptist. See, everything about the way in which he begins his ministry here seems to be unpredictable. It it seems to blow the categories in our minds of how we think it should go for the Messiah King to come on the scene. You have in this text today, at his baptism, this beautiful moment of him hearing a voice from heaven and the Spirit descending like a dove, and then immediately we see that he's then led into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. In this moment, we see the spiritual baptism, and it's wedded with this spiritual battle. In one moment, we see that he's receiving a voice from heaven, and the next he's receiving a voice from hell. In one moment, he's experiencing comfort, and the next he is experiencing conflict. In one moment, he is in the water, and the next moment, he is in the desert. Think about it. This doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The way he would begin his earthly ministry, the way he would put on his ministry publicly for the very first time, the way he burst on the scene is unlike any category in which we would think should happen. And yet, the way he does it here actually begins to teach us about both his identity and his mission. The very way in which he bursts on the scene here will lead us to our main idea today, which is simply this we're going to look at, that in the baptism and temptation of Jesus, he is communicating to us that he is our righteous Savior. Both in his identity as the true righteous one who will completely please the Father, who will completely do the will of his Father, he becomes in his mission the Savior for all. You see, this message today of his baptism and temptation is one of hope for us. It's a message that reminds us that we needed someone to come in our place, and Jesus comes, and in his identity as the Son of God, as the only righteous one, is the one who substitutes his life for our life. He becomes our righteous Savior, and we're going to see that put on display through the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Now, in our outline today, we're going to ask three uh, three questions of the text that will help us better understand both his mission and his identity. First question is, what is the mission? We're going to look at how the baptism of Jesus teaches us about the mission of God through Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see who is the enemy, right? Why is he then going into the wilderness to be tempted right after he receives his baptism? And then finally, we're going to look at where is our hope? If Jesus has a mission, and if there's a real enemy out there, well, where is our hope to live in this life? And we're going to find that in our main idea today as he is our righteous Savior. So let's go ahead and dive into the text here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, some context what's happening here. We have this character we're we're, we're given an identification to here in verse 13 to 14. That is John the Baptist. We have in the wilderness John the Baptist, who is there, as the Gospel of John reminds us, his sole purpose is to prepare Israel for the Messiah. He has come to to prepare uh, Israel to reveal Jesus. 
And he actually quotes it in, uh, in the gospel here of Matthew, the prophet Isaiah, that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist is out fulfilling his calling in the wilderness. He's out by the Jordan. He is baptizing people with his baptism of repentance, and he's preaching to them, proclaiming the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus steps on the scene here. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. It's a pivotal moment in redemptive history because we said it's the first time that Jesus is publicly emerging on the stage. If you notice, there's only two, two out of the four Gospels record the birth narrative of Jesus. And there's really, relatively nothing recorded of his life from uh, age two when he comes back from Egypt to now this moment in his 30s. But in this moment, the baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. It's a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. And what, what sets the stage even more, it makes it even more pivotal, is the fact that we see the anointing of the Spirit upon Jesus, that the Spirit comes down, as the text says, like, like a dove from heaven. Now we know that, that Jesus is, is uh, part of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we know that the Spirit of the Lord was already with him, but at this moment he's receiving this anointing of the Spirit, is coming in the imagery of a dove. And that should, that should make our minds think about the Old Testament for a moment, Right? Where else do we see this imagery? Well, we see it in Noah and the ark with the floodwaters. And we also, it, it would herald back to, to creation itself as well. Now, why is this important? Because in this moment, when the Spirit is coming upon Jesus, it is setting the course for his mission on this earth. It is setting the course for the rest of his ministry, his earthly ministry, and it says what it's reminding us, drawing us back both to the Old Testament and Noah's Ark and also into creation is to remind us that Jesus is setting the, pay, the way forward here, the course for new creation. And in this moment, he is setting forth a path to create in us something new through his life, death, and resurrection. But the question then remains, well, why does he symbolically do it by baptism? Why is baptism the act that he sets in motion this public ministry? Is it just so that we would have an example to follow in our own baptism, or is there something more here that he's trying to communicate to us? I think the answer really is in what John the Baptist says back to him. Notice again, when John sees that Jesus is coming to be baptized, he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> like, this is backwards. I, 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 I'm, I can't baptize you. Like, I need to be down there in the water, not, not you, right? The, you got this backwards, Jesus. This isn't how it's supposed to happen. And the reason John is saying this is because those who are coming to receive this baptism are coming because they have a consciousness of their sin. And this baptism is a representation, it's a symbolic representation of repentance. That people are coming with a consciousness of their sin. They're going into the waters and the waters were symbolically washing away their sin as they repented. John's saying the Messiah doesn't need to go into those waters to receive this baptism. I need to be down there, Jesus. You need to be baptizing me. This is, you got it backwards. What does Jesus say to him? He says, actually, no, this is fitting. He says, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is communicating to us is that he has come to fulfill all righteousness. That his main mission is not just to get baptized as an example for us. It's not just to take upon our repentance for us in the water. He came to live our life for us to fulfill all righteousness. He came to put, to substitute himself in our place. And what his baptism is symbolically representing is that truth, that Jesus has come to sub substitute his life for our life so that we can receive the blessings of his life. 
he enters these sin-polluted waters of the Jordan River to, to show us what he is going to do that he is going to take upon those sins upon him on the cross so that then we would receive his righteousness as the only true righteous one. And in fact, Luke 12 reminds us of this, that Jesus actually says in Luke 12 that I still have another baptism. He, he says, I still got a baptism to be baptized with even after this. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the cross. He's reminding us that in this moment, it's almost as if when he goes down into the waters of the Jordan and he comes up, he is prophetically looking forward to the cross. They will, he will be baptized in all the sins of the world so that we could experience the blessings of his life. You see, in his baptism, he is showing us his mission, that he has come to be our savior, to die in our place, to substitute his life for ours. But notice he also tells us a little bit about his identity here. Notice that when he comes out of the water, there is a voice from heaven and this voice from heaven reminds the people that he is the divine son of God. And when God speaks at Jesus' baptism here, he actually quotes from two Old Testament passages. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 2, which talks about the Messiah king who would come to rule the nations. Right? This phrase, this is my son, that is a quotation from Psalm 2. And then he's also quoting from Isaiah 42, which talks about this suffering servant who would come and suffer greatly for the sins of others. You see, the Jewish people knew these passages. They were familiar to them, but they couldn't reconcile how they related to one another. And here, what, what God is doing when he uh, speaks to his son, he is reconciling these things together to remind us that when Jesus comes, he does come as the righteous king, as the Messiah, but he comes as the suffering servant, the one who will die for us. You see, right here in his baptism, he not only proclaims his mission as the Savior, but he proclaims his identity as the servant king, as the one who is both king over all, the only true righteous one, the son of God, who is also the suffering servant, the one who will be pierced for our transgressions, the one who will be crushed for our sins. Right here at the very beginning in his baptism, he is not just setting an example for us to follow, he is setting the course of his mission, that he would submit his life to the will of the Father, to become our righteous savior. Now this is important because then it helps us address this second question. If that is his mission, that is his identity, in the, in the baptism we see this, that he has come to take our place, he has come to substitute his life for our life. That's why John says, hey, I need to be there. But Jesus says, no, I, no to fulfill righteousness, I'm going down in the water. Then who is the enemy? And why does this matter? Notice in chapter four, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Now, this is interesting because Mark's gospel actually says immediately, like to, to, to showcase that these things are tied together, that you can't have the baptism of Jesus without the temptation as well. They, they're wedded together. He says, and then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to do to, to what? To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, right? I love that. This is the humanity here of Jesus, right? He's hungry. Maybe he's a little hangry at times. Now, it's interesting here, and again, this shows the unpredictability of the nature of how Jesus comes, that the Spirit comes upon him at baptism, and that same Spirit then leads him into the desert where his enemy lies in waiting. See, imagine this for a moment. If you were in a place where you could be so filled with the Spirit like this, where you could be so led by the Spirit that you could actually be pleasing to God as Jesus says, as God says to Jesus, you are pleasing to me. Imagine you can get yourself in that state where you're so filled with the Spirit that you're pleasing to God. What would the life look like for you? Well, we wouldn't think it would look like 
immediate temptation, right? Immediately what happens here is he goes from experiencing this blessing of, of the Spirit and that same Spirit leading him to temptation. In other words, it reminds us that our souls sometimes crave comfort over adversity, but comfort is not better than adversity. And Jesus is actually showing us something here. That if we think that because our life is going well, then that means that we're better than others or perhaps we're doing things the right way, or we, we feel the reversal that our lives are going really bad right now, that means there must be something bad in us, Jesus breaks those categories here and he actually says something quite the opposite. That the very one person who can ultimately say, I am pleasing to God the Father and ultimately being led by the Spirit, his life leads him immediately into temptation, into trials, into hunger. He just reminds us this morning that Christianity is a battle. It's a fight. And in order to understand that the Christian faith is a fight, it's to understand that there is a real opposition, that there's an enemy. And Jesus actually begins his earthly mission, his ministry, with this enemy, Satan, or as he's referred to here as the devil. Now again, let's just pause for a moment, and let's not, let's go ahead and get that like caricature mascot of a devil out of our minds for a moment, okay? Because what the, the word literally means is accuser. It means liar, by nature a deceiver. And if you survey the Bible, you'll find that the, that the devil is, is portrayed as a personal being, as a fallen angel, as a creature who sought independence from God, who sought to usurp God, who, who wanted to be God, and he fell from his position. But he's also known as this invisible power, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 6, that is working behind the scenes, that there is this kingdom that is working in opposition to the kingdom of God, a kingdom of fear and a kingdom of hatred and a kingdom of evil. Now, I know when we get here to this moment, it, it's kind of hard to grasp this because as a society, as a modern society, we tend to diminish the, the idea of, a, of an intelligent evil in this world. Uh, we, we, we tend to diminish the, the spiritual in general and, and just focus on the material in our society. That's pretty, pretty common, right? There's other, uh, other societies that do the exact opposite, but as a Western society, we tend to do that when it comes to evil things. We question our minds, well, maybe I can believe in, in a good God or a higher power, but it's really hard for me to believe in this evil intelligence namely the devil, right? And the devil actually operates a lot of times like, like those uh, desert lizards in Arizona, right? In some ways, they try to puff themselves up to make themselves look bigger than they are, and other times they just play dead to believe that they don't even exist. And oftentimes in our society, that's how the enemy works. And in fact, we play right into his hands if we logically begin to conclude, well, there's no way there could be an intelligent evil because that is actually one of the main things that he wants to accomplish is the belief that he is not real and the belief that he is not there. It reminds me of Harry Potter uh, and Lord Voldemort, right? Um, I am not that big of a Harry Potter fan. I'm gonna, I actually thought of this il illustration because of The Office, which is bad because they make fun of Harry Potter in it. But, uh, but you have Lord Voldemort, right? And his presence is all around Hogwarts. It's felt everywhere. In the signs, and the shadows, you always feel his presence. You feel it in the Dementors. You feel it in, in the, the glare of Professor Snape. You feel it in the, the conniving and cunning ways of the Slytherin house. You feel it all around. And what is Hogwarts' strategy when dealing with Lord Voldemort? What do they say? They say, well, well, we should call him by his nickname, which is he who should not be named, right? Their whole idea is that let's just believe he doesn't exist, and that will solve everything. And that is precisely how sometimes we operate. But listen, if, if we believe logically that there is a good God and we look at the world around us and we see the evil and hatred in this world, we have to come to a logical conclusion that if we believe there's a good God and there's evil in this world, then why, what keeps us from believing that there is an intelligence, an evil intelligence behind that? Or we just have that low of opinion of human nature, right? And, and more so than that, Jesus himself 
reminds us from the beginning of his ministry that there is an enemy and that we're in a battle. And if we believe that he's not there, we're going to lose. Because every time you feel like you make progress in life, you're going to feel a counterattack. Is that not what happens here with Jesus? In the moment he is filled with the, the, the anointing of the Spirit, he is led to then find a contradiction. The word of God comes to him, and then immediately Satan comes with a contradiction. Look what he says in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. What did, what did God the Father just say? You are my Son. And immediately he begins, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, he knows Jesus is hungry. It's not, it's not a bad thing, right, if you're hungry to uh, use whatever means necessary to fill your tummy, okay? That, it's a good thing, right? He's not, tempting, uh, he's not really tempting uh, Jesus to do something bad. At least it doesn't seem that way on the front end. What is he actually saying here? What Satan is doing is he's attacking the very idea of Jesus as our Savior. You see, what he's trying to get Jesus to do is to use his power for himself, He's trying to say, Jesus, use your divine power for yourself. Don't rely on the spirit that just came upon you. Don't, don't rely on doing the will of your father. Use it on yourself. You can do it, Jesus. Display your strength in this way. Don't display your weakness by substituting your life for another, by suffering for another. Fill, fill your life right now, Jesus, with your own strength. And then he takes him up to the holy city. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the text says. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, again, questioning, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He essentially says to Jesus, hey, look, why don't you just go to the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself off, and begin to levitate above the earth. I mean, that, that will draw people to yourself, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross to draw people to yourself. Just, just do that. That will draw people to your power. And then again, in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He takes him to this very high mountain and he says, hey, look, just worship me. Right? I can give you everything that God the Father is, always gonna, is gonna give you anyways. What is he saying here in these temptations? What he's saying is, Jesus, you can have the mountain without the valley. Jesus, you can have the crown without the cross. Jesus, just, just come down in your strength and set a good example for people to follow. T tell them that, that you can follow me if you do these things. In essence, what he's telling Jesus is establish a religion like everybody else establishes a religion. Do this and then you'll be saved. Don't come down as the savior. Come down in strength and tell people to live like you so that they can be saved. Don't come down from the mountain as the Savior who says, even though you're weak, I'm going to live the life you should have lived so that you can be saved. He's attacking the very heart of the Christian message. At the very heart of his mission. Satan is hurling an, an onslaught on the very heart of the Christian faith. And why does this matter? Because that's precisely how he attacks us as well. You see, our, our encounter with the enemy is less like the movies like The Exorcist and more like The Wilderness here. It's less, less like, like Satan, you know, levitating and throwing knives at us like we see on these horror movies that display that. It is more like simply not believing that Jesus is our Savior. He comes at us and he distorts things and he says, if you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, then why are you living like this? If you are a child of God, then why is your life like this? He comes and he deceives in this very same way. And this is important for us to see because, look, Jesus is not just setting an example for us in temptation of how to fight it here. He's showing us the one that we rely on in the midst of it. 
that we have to believe in our hearts that he is our righteous savior in those moments. Because here's what happens. If we don't put that deep down in our hearts in the moment of trials and temptation, what's going to happen? Well, there's really two things that will happen. In one moment, we'll look at the circumstances, and we'll weigh those circumstances too heavily. We'll say, we'll blame it on the circumstances and end up getting mad at God. God, why have you put me through this? God, why am I facing this suffering? Why am I facing this temptation? On the other end, we'll believe the lies of what the, the tempter is teaching us or saying to us in the midst of the circumstances. And we'll say, I do deserve this. I'm such a bad person. I, I deserve worse than this. And we get mad at ourselves. You see, when trials and temptation come, if we just look at Jesus and we say he's just our example, but he's not actually our savior, and we don't root that in our hearts, then we can fall into one of these two categories. We can either find ourselves being mad at the circumstances we have and ultimately mad at God, or we can find ourselves believing the lies within the circumstances and be mad at ourselves. But right here, we remember the words of baptism. That when God looks at his son, and when we see that he is our savior, then those words are true for us as well. That you are my beloved son, you are my beloved children, in whom I am well pleased. That is the remedy, that is the transformation that helps us when we're fighting against the enemy. Because right now, if the tempter comes and he says to you, you're a moral, moral failure right now, you are failing in life, you are no good, what you need to believe this morning is the words of God that says you are my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. If right now you are overcome with depression in your life and you look at people and they're not pleased with you, your coworkers, your friends, even perhaps those closest to you, your relatives or your spouse, and they're starting to tell you things like you're no good, you need to hear the words of your father this morning because if Jesus has died in your place, he looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You have the absolute approval of the one who matters. And if you're worried right now, you're overcome with anxiety, as we often are about the future, and we're thinking, am I always going to be alone? Is this circumstance always going to be true of my life right now? You need to hear the words of your father who says, you are my beloved child. I am not going to let you wonder. You are mine. You see, rooting this in our hearts is how we deal with trials and temptation. We have to acknowledge that there is a real enemy present in this life. We have to acknowledge as well that what helps us in the fight of our sin, our temptation, is to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. That because Christ is our righteous Savior, the Father looks at us and says, I am well pleased with you. I am well pleased with you. You are my child. Now, how does this lead us to our hope this morning? Is there hope? Where is our hope this morning when we face trials and temptation? Where, where do we run to in the midst of those darkest moments? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here in the text. You see, in the darkest moments of Jesus' life, when he is feeling the temptation and trials of this life, his hope lies in the word of God. Because Jesus understood that nothing else will ever satisfy. Jesus understood that there is nothing that will satisfy like the very words of our God. And as, as the Father speaks words over Jesus, he leads him to the, the wilderness. In every single moment, Jesus speaks the word of God. You see, if we believe in our hearts this morning that there are other ways in which we can have God say to us that he's pleased with us, then Satan already has us wrapped around his finger. If we believe there are things that we can conjure up that says, I can, I can be pleasing in his sight, then, then we're already given in. But the remedy for that, the hope lies in the word of God. 
Here's what we mean by this. When you experience temptation, let's just say it perhaps is a, 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 a sexual boundary, and you're experiencing temptation, and you cross that, that boundary. You know what's actually happening in that moment? We're believing a lie that this is actually what can make us pleasing to someone. We're believing a lie in that moment that this is actually giving us worth and value. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not, that's not what gives you value. That's not what's pleasing. That's not what satisfy you. Or perhaps you're at your job and you know you're doing something dishonest to gain ahead a of someone else. You just know right now what you're doing is not, not the, the best because you're trying to, to get to that next step. And the temptation then is to believe that, no, I need this in order to be satisfied. I absolutely need this in order to be satisfied. And Jesus reminds us here, no, that's not going to satisfy you. No matter how good those things might be, the temptation is to believe that they will be the satisfaction for us. But our hope lies within the word of God. It reminds us this morning that we can trust in what Jesus has done for us. Deep down, getting it deep down in our hearts this morning, bearing into our hearts that we have hope because Jesus Christ, because he is our savior. And the God the Father then can look at us and say, no matter what is happening in your life right now, he can look at you and say, I am, I, I, I'm telling you, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. You see, in every moment, Jesus goes to the scriptures instinctively. Uh, one pastor says this way, if you were to poke Jesus, he would bleed scripture, right? And Satan does poke him here, and he begins to bleed drops of scripture. And later, Satan would try to, to, try to poke him again, and yet he would him with a dagger on the cross. In that moment, what does Jesus do? He bleeds out scripture again. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31, into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. You see, in the moment of your greatest pain, what, what actually happens, right? What comes out in the moment of your greatest pain? If you're in your greatest moment of pain or suffering and temptation, you don't just sit back and say, I wonder what I should say in this moment, right? When you're in your moment of greatest pain, what comes out is what is instinctive to you. What comes out is what is actually real to you. What, what is your core? What is in your heart? What truly matters to you? What do you think about most? And what came out on the cross for Jesus was the scriptures. In his greatest moment of pain, literally processing hell on earth on the cross, Jesus is processing it with the scriptures. Which means that Satan can never get a foothold, even in his most darkest moment, because Jesus' heart was saturated by the truth. It was filled with the beauty and truth of God. You see, when Jesus Christ is only an, an example of how we should live this morning, both through his baptism and his resisting of temptation, it can actually discourage us because we'll never live up to that example. We'll never do enough to, to, to fulfill that example. But when we see Jesus as our substitute here, that he is the one who went in the water for us, and that he is the one who went into the desert for us, and he is the one who passed the test so that we can be accepted by God even when we fail that test time and time again. That is what fills our hearts with hope this morning in the midst of trials and temptation. We can let that sink in. It's not just simply, let me memorize scripture. It's saying, no, I know what the scriptures are about, and they're about what Jesus has already done for me, what he has done for us. As we come to the Lord's Supper, let us be reminded this morning 
that his mission as our righteous Savior, he came to fulfill that mission so that when we face struggles in this world, when we face challenges in this world, when we face the enemy in this world, when we face trials in this world, we know that Jesus walks right alongside of us. He is our faithful companion. He has already passed the test for us. He's already dealt with it on the cross for us. And he assures us that he is with us. And that as he is in your life right now, then you have nothing to fear. Because he is our righteous Savior who gives us resurrection power and empowers us to live this life. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.